Hey, y'all. This week, we're so excited to talk again with Scott Miller. Scott is a highly sought-after speaker, author, and podcast host. He's a Wall Street Journal best-selling author and currently serves as Franklin Covey Senior Advisor on Thought Leadership. Prior to his advisor role, Scott was a 25-year Franklin Covey Associate, serving as the Chief Marketing Officer and Executive Vice President. He also hosts On Leadership with Scott Miller, which just happens to be the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. We're so excited for y'all to listen, and we hope you enjoy. Do you love the idea of personal growth, but find the practice of it exhausting? We get it. We're Brandon and Megan Giggling, growth coaches with the mission to put the personal back in personal growth. If you want a new way of growing into the next version of you without the frustration, guilt, and overwhelm, you're in the right place. It's time to rethink your growth journey and make it into something that works for you. You in? Welcome to Growth Reframed. So congrats. We you got yet another Master Mentor book, Master Mentor Volume 2. And I just want to say I love this series. I love what what you're doing with your podcast uh, on leadership. And it's just, it's kind of cool because I like listening to the episodes of your podcast, but even it it kind of goes a step further when I hear almost like your personal commentary in the book. Like it's cool how you're bringing that in. So congrats on yet another volume. And I see there's like a volume three after that as well. There's 10 volumes. So HarperCollins has signed me to a 10-year, 10-volume series. I'm hoping it turns turns into a little bit of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Each each book, I feature and shine the spotlight on 30 new podcast guests, some that are big celebrities and some that are maybe not so much household names. You're right. Volume three is in the works. Got some great people identified for volume three. Uh, Camilla McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey's wife and a business entrepreneur in her own right. Ryan Serhant from Bravo, that, you know, Bravo star, Ariana Huffington, Mel Robbins. And there's a 30 great people in volume three. I'm very excited about it. Volume three is going to maybe be the best of the first three, I think. Oh, wow. All right. Well, we look forward to that. So one of our questions for you, and because we watch you, we follow you on social, we follow kind of everything you're doing and we have a family ourselves. So like you take on so many different work obligations, right? And you also have so many family obligations. So my question is, because we struggle with this, how do you, how do you balance all that? I know it can't be a perfect balance, but like, how do you manage all that? Well, Brandon, what are you struggling with? It's a breeze. I just get up at two in the morning and go to bed at midnight and there's no problem. No, you're right. It's, It's a little insanity. Like you, my wife and I, our parents, uh, we have three children and two dogs, which quite frankly are just as much work as the kids are most days. You know how that goes. How that goes. You know, I think I think there's one guiding principle I try to live my life through. And that is, and I wrote about it in Master Mentors Volume One, the first mentor. Mentor one was Nick Vujicic, who you of course know is the famous author and speaker and um, uh, evangelist for his faith. He taught me this value of living your life, not through the lens of I have to or I ought to, but rather I get to. Mm -hmm. And so I try to live my life every day. I get to empty the dishwasher. I get to be on three podcasts. I get the opportunity to write books and write columns. I get the opportunity to drive boys to two separate schools. I get the opportunity to go pick them up at separate times at the end of the day at the same basketball practice, separate times. So I just try to live my life through a lens of gratitude. I've been given some remarkable opportunities, whether it be podcasting or 
uh, writing or blogging or columning or speaking. And I'm grateful for that platform and spotlight that I now have. And I'm just trying to milk as much of it out for not just my benefit, but for the benefit of the people that I can also shine the spotlight onto, like you are doing, right? I mean, you're shining onto me and I'm shining onto others. So Brandon, there's also seasons of our life, right? There's seasons of balance and imbalance. For the next three years, I'm out of balance. <laughs> but <laughs> after that, I, you get the point, right? As I do, I do try to take, you know, that balance and imbalance seriously. My wife and I took two weeks, went to Italy this summer. I didn't work one hour in two weeks. It was pure vacation with our boys. Mm -hmm. We bought two things, gelato and Pokemon cards. Don't ask. <laughs> but we had a great time, two weeks of just pure rejuvenation. So that's kind of how I'm doing it. Living a life, hopefully through gratitude, not through I have to or I ought to, but rather I get to and recognizing when to create some balance when you're out of balance. Yeah. I love that. So what I hear you saying, I think is that part of that for you is the mental health aspect is kind of taking some vacation time and living your life of gratitude. Are you doing anything else to work on your mental health or how are you facing the challenges of your current life and also maintaining at least, at least a little bit of that balance? Do you mean, am I taking anything in pill form? Is that what you mean? Like, no, you do. I'm you. Sure my wife thinks I need to, right? So, <laughs> oh, that's why my, that's why my shake tastes different every morning. I, I, no, <laughs> no, I'm very, I think I'm very blessed to be in fairly strong mental health. Although my father passed away a few weeks ago and it's been very traumatic mm. for me. I've not had much setbacks in life. I've had a very blessed and, 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 easy life compared to some people. It makes me kind of nervous. You know, is my turn coming? Um, I think I get a lot of sleep. My wife will tell you I go to bed most nights by 9.30, sometimes earlier. And I sleep really subtly. I get up early every morning. I was up at 3.30 yesterday morning. I was up at four o'clock, you know, two mornings ago. This morning I slept in to around five, slept in. So I go really strong. But Megan, to your point, I get great sleep. I go to sleep every night at 9.30. And so I get a good, you know, seven hours of sleep every night. That's crucial to my health. I try to spend time with my boys, my wife on the weekends. Um, we have a fairly regimented weekend, basketball, tennis, dinner parties, uh, church on Sundays. We go to brunch on Sunday afternoons. We purposely don't schedule Sunday afternoons. We kind of keep them open just to kind of see what happens and hang around the house. Our Sunday afternoons in the fall are just kind of watching football and drinking champagne and making spaghetti, or we try to keep our Sundays other than church and brunch fairly open. And then it is Monday morning, pedal to the metal. So <laughs> everyone's right. got their own strategy, but I try to keep some balance within the week as well. Mm -hmm. And what I hear you saying too, is like, you got to be really intentional with your time. I Bro. think it, we get pulled away, you know, we got our cell phones with us. We got our computers. We're constantly inundated with information. I think you, you got to be just really intentional. Like you are with your weekend time. You're setting that aside, knowing that the weeks might be crazy and you know, you're going to be stacked up with meetings or whatever it is, but you have to be intentional with your time as you move into the weekend. It sounds like that's what you're doing. You've exactly described me, maybe even maniacal. Uh, I live my life now, like in 15 minute increments, I bought this little egg timer and I, not my dinners, right. And not my parenting <laughs> time, but I do. I mean, I set the timer 15, 20 times a day, 15 minutes to work on a chapter, 15 minutes for a column, 15 minutes for preparation. And so I have found that, you know, from about seven until about four every day, 
I generally lead my life in 15 minute increments. Today will be 30 minutes with you and your podcast. That's two 15 minute increments. I don't live that life, you know, from six o'clock on in the evening, but Monday through Friday, I am really regimented. Like my day is scheduled into 15, 30 minute increments, including lunch, 30 minutes for lunch, 15 minutes travel time. And I found that it has exponentiated not just my efficiency, but also my effectiveness. Cause I know I'm going to get a break at, at, you know, at six o'clock at night, I'm open, I'm free. And I've got, you know, three and a half hours before bedtime to do whatever <laughs> I want, including parenting or tennis or whatever. But I do live a very disciplined, intentional, deliberate life from about 4 a.m. to about 6 p.m. every day. Mm-hmm. And it's and I think it's why I've been able to accomplish what I've accomplished because I live my life around making and keeping promises. I do not like breaking promises. And so I have a reputation of doing what I say I'm going to do and usually coming in, if not on time, just a few minutes early. Sure. Yeah. And I think like when you're looking at it in the 15 minute increments, then you can start to really put into your mind the value of those 15 minutes, because if you're going to, if you're like, well, I kind of wasted that 15 minutes, but that was only 15 minutes of my day. So I can get back on track. It'd be a really easy tool to use. So that's pretty cool. I've been kind of, I've been sort of uh, flogged and pilloried on social media since I posted my 15 minute timer. And by the way, uh, you know, I've got two iPhones. I could usually use easy to timer here, but then they're interrupted, right? With uh, text and email and social media and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I keep this timer in my pocket and I carry it everywhere I go. Now, again, I don't do everything in 15 minutes, obviously, (laughs) but here's what I'll find myself doing. I'll walk around the house and I'll be a little bit overwhelmed. I have a chapter to write in a book that I'm writing for something. And I'll think, yeah, I don't really know what I'm going to write about. And then two days will go by and I haven't written anything. But instead now I sit down on the sofa, I hit my 15 minute timer and I write for 15 minutes before I know it, I've got 400 words. And I think, oh, I'm in the middle of a thought. The timer goes off. I hit it again, 15 more minutes. And I, right now I've got a full chapter that I've written. So it has helped me to focus and discipline. I turn off my phones. And so as crazy as it is, this little gadget that I'm showing right now, this little egg timer for $20, it has exponentiated my focus, my ability to do bursts of creativity in 15 minute increments. Now it could be 20 minutes or 30 minutes. I just picked 15 minutes because I have a short attention span, but it has no question improved my focus and my efficiency. Man, I think I'm about to try that. (laughs) So (laughs) one of the biggest things I admire about you is your ability to decide to, to step away from the things, you know, like you've, you've stepped away from a lot of what you knew before and, and you've stepped into the unknown. And with that obviously comes exponential amount of challenges. So my question to you is, what are some of the biggest challenges you've faced as you're stepping away completely from what you knew at Franklin Covey and then moving into a lot of the new things you're doing, which I'm really excited about? Brandon, I appreciate the the question. I also appreciate the, the assessment because you're absolutely true. I have massively disrupted myself, right? I started my career 30 years ago in real estate. Actually, I started my career in the service industry, working in restaurants and such. And then I became a staffer on presidential campaigns. Then I moved my way into real estate. I joined the Disney company as a project manager. I came to Franklin Covey, started as a salesperson, moved into sales leadership, then pivoted into marketing to become the chief marketing officer. I moved away from that into thought leadership, started a radio program on iHeartRadio. Then I became a keynote speaker and wrote columns and books. Now I'm actually 
I'm actually a talent agent. My core business is I'm a talent agent. I own a speaking agency, talent agency, and literary agency, in addition to writing and speaking. Ask me if I know how to be a talent agent. Well, don't <laughs> tell my clients this, but no, I don't. I mean, all day long, I'm negotiating Netflix and Hulu movies and Hallmark things and documentaries. I'm pitching books to publishers. And so I, I'm fairly courageous. I'm okay being wrong. I'm okay starting over. I don't even know the word fail. I see, I see my life, my professional life through the lens of sometimes a disappointment is merely an appointment. Okay, that didn't work out. Try something new. So I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm a sociopath, but I don't <laughs> have failure as part of my vocabulary. I just, I don't even think about it. I just think, oh, well, I'll just learn. Okay, I'll make a mistake and I'll admit it. And then I'll learn and I'll do it differently. I'll tell you what I found, my ability to consistently disrupt myself. It's really a combination of two things. I'm pretty fearless. Now, I hate sharks. I hate snakes. I hate alligators. I'm not jumping out of airplanes to, I'm not paraglidings. So I've got some fears. But in terms of life, I don't mind you seeing me fail. So one is I'm fairly courageous. And the other is, like I said before, I make and keep commitments. So I've got a pretty good reputation with people. If Scott says he'll do something, I'll do it or I'll figure out how to do it or I'll explain what I'm doing. I, um, that transparency, that vulnerability has been a big asset to me. So if anybody else is thinking of disrupting yourself, you ought to, because you know this phrase, it's horrifying, but it's true. You're never in the room when your career is decided for you. And I hate that phrase, but there's so much truth to it. And when I heard it, I thought, no, no one's going to decide my future for me. I'm going to go kick myself out of the job before they do. So I've taken some bold steps, not crazy bold. I have a wife who's a stay-at-home mom and three children. So I have four humans that are 100% dependent upon me to, you know, put them in braces and pay for the power <laughs> bill and all that kind of stuff. My wife has chosen to be a stay-at-home mom. So I can't just quit every job I have because I'm bored or don't want to work for someone else. But I think once you once you kind of stop caring what people think about you. Mm. Now, I care that you think I am trustworthy. I care that you think I have strong integrity. I care that you think I have something to add. But kind of beyond that, I don't really care what you think about me. So it has been very liberating me to go try new things and in the last five years, I've tried like nine things. And quite frankly, all of them were kind of working out. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, could I be a brain a surgeon? No. <laughs> I mean, could I be a commercial airline pilot? Oh, hell no. Right. So I know my <laughs> limits. I, I'm not going to become an anesthesiologist. I know my limits. But I think the art of self-disruption is so liberating. It can be validating. You learn so much. And if you're not, you know, it was Rachel Hollis that really taught me this idea. She said, most people don't fear failure. They fear other people seeing them fail. Mm -hmm. And I don't fear that. Wow. I fail all the time. My book two books ago, it sold 67 copies coming out of the gate. It's an abject failure. I spent a year writing it. I spent, you know, $70,000 launching it. <clears throat> it sold 60 seven copies. Like I couldn't find 67 friends to buy my book. Now I've had other yeah. books that have sold 30, 40, 50,000 copies. So I'm quite comfortable talking about my mistakes. And I find that quite liberating. 
And we find it quite endearing. <laughs> well, that's sweet of you. That's sweet of you. Hey, but I'm also Catholic, so I have a lifetime of conditioning, confessing stuff, right? It's easy for me. <laughs> okay. So speaking of all of that, though, how do you, this is a question that's actually, been, we've been talking about this a lot, just like in our personal and professional lives. How are you balancing setting goals that are attainable without limiting what you believe is possible? Like, where's the balance and how do you, how are you personally sorting through that where, you know, on one side, I don't want to go be like, I'm going to, like you said, I'm not going to go become a commercial airline pilot, but also right. I don't want to limit my ability to do whatever, whatever the thing is. I'm not sure I've actually thought about that again, but I love the question, Megan. I, I don't just, I don't think in terms of limits. I just don't. I, I maybe, again, maybe I'm just this arrogant schmuck. <laughs> That is, in fact, a sociopath. I don't think I am. Uh, I don't think in terms of limits. I think in terms of <clears throat> if I want to try something, I'll try it. Now, I don't dive into things without any credibility, right? I mean, I didn't decide one day, oh, I'm going to write a book. No, I mean, I've been in the book industry. I'd help people write their books. I understood what kind of books I liked. I'd written lots of books. And I finally started to realize, you know what? I could write a book. And I went and wrote one and it sold really well. And I wrote two and three and four and five. So I think, I think it's also just a mindset is I woke up every day. I don't think I, 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 what I don't do, Megan, is I don't let other people's opinions of me limitly limit me. Listen, I got a lot of people who don't like me. Let's be very serious. I've been an officer in a global public company for 25 years, right? I've got detractors and I've got supporters. And so I know people don't like me, but I just don't let that limit me. I say, I know you don't like me. And let me guess the eight reasons why you don't like me. I, I, I can figure it out. I'm self-aware, but I like me. And there's a couple people who might like me. I'm going to go find them. So I tend to run with my strengths. I don't focus on my weaknesses. I tend to run limitless. And I don't see, I mean, I talk freely. 67 copies of a book launch is an abject failure. There's no way to clean that puppy up. There's no way to clean it up. But I just think of it in terms of what have I learned? What will I do differently? What mistakes won't I make the next time? Different topic, different audience, different launch strategy. And so I do, I do set lofty goals for myself. I don't set myself up for failure though. I'm not going to be a chemical engineer. I'm probably not even going to be a mortgage broker. My math skills aren't that great. But I'm older than I get, Megan, the more I and surrounding myself with people who like me and who buoy me and who coach me and who see the potential in me. And I kind of just have blinders on those mm -hmm. who don't like me because life is either too short or too long to pay any attention to the haters. Haters going to mm -hmm. hate. Right. So when you're, when you're doing something like writing a book, something you have experience with, you're not necessarily ever looking to other people you admire in the field to say, well, they sold this many copies of my oh, book, no, I so I need to sell that many copies of my book. So that's oh. that's the question too. Are you like say someone sure. sells say someone sells you know two million copies of your book? Then are you are of not of your book of their book? Say they say two million oh. two million copies. <laughs> so when you start out and you look at that goal and you're like, okay, I wrote this book. That's kind of my question. That's where I get stuck because yes. I'm like, yes. I want to get to two million dollars, yes. which is the mountaintop for me in the yeah. moment. Yeah. But it's, I also don't want to be disappointed when I don't hit even 10,000. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, yeah, that's yeah. Ma that's mainly where I kind of wrap my head around it. 
again, maybe it's my lack of <laughs> something, but I don't, I, um, disappointment kind of isn't an emotion that I even relate to. I, I don't even, I just, I see everything as a learning opportunity. I mean, right now I'm going through a two year IRS audit, two years, all my bank statements, all my credit card statements, all my, everything. It is a, it is a financial proctology exam. Mm -hmm. I just went in, I told the truth. I was myself. I didn't spin it. I didn't fight them. I just talked about it. Again, I'm not a pushover, but I, to me, I'm going to owe them some money and, and it's not going to be the end of the world. I like the auditor. She kind of likes me. I didn't go in all lawyered up or all accounted up. I just went in and was myself. And so to your question, I don't really see life as setbacks. I really think of, so what is there to learn in this, right? I mean, I've experienced some trauma with my my father's passing a few months and I keep asking myself, so what is there to learn from this? What, what am I going to take away from this for my next life trauma? I also will tell you though, Brandon, I do like everybody else have what I would call the, the comparison conundrum. Of course, I compare myself to great authors, to great speakers that are earning, you know, 10 times what I'm earning. But I don't really find my validation there. I find great validation in taking nothing and turning it into something. I like to take nothing and turn it into something. And when someone invites me on their podcast or invites me to speak, I take great validation in that. I don't tend... I, I recognize how easy it is to compare yourself to other people's success, but I also recognize that I don't have their genius. I don't have their Ivy League degree or their trust fund or their personality or their famous spouse or whatever it is. I just know that I have my skills and my talents. And so I put together old fashioned hard work <laughs> and I take my hard work and my reputation and my network and I put it to work for me. I think my biggest area of improvement in, in this question you're asking is I don't tend to live in the past. I live in the future. But I don't live in the present. And I should live more in the present. I live very much in the future, right? So what is 2024 book launch going to look like? And what is 2025's product? So I'm always looking in the future. And that's a good thing because I'm in control of my future. But the bad part of that is, is, I'm really not in control of my presence because I'm not present. I'm mm. rarely present with my boys, with my wife, with my business. And I'm working hard on being more in the moment. I interviewed Deepak Chopra on my podcast recently. And Deepak Chopra said something I thought was profound. He said, there are human beings and there are human doings. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm a human doing. <laughs> I want to be more of a human being. I'm not ashamed of being a human do doing because that's where my successes come from, right? I mean, mm -hmm. my wife would also like to have next year's mortgage paid and she counts on me to do my share while she does her share. So in some ways, I kind of deprive myself of living in the present. But increasingly, I'm trying not to compare myself to other people because I just don't have their collection of stuff. I have my collection of stuff. Absolutely. I find it aspirational, but I don't find it de minimis. If someone else sells a million copies, great for them. What can I learn from them that I can repeat with my skills, my network, my opportunities? Absolutely. That's a great answer. way to look apologize, at it. Megan. Oh, oh, that was a long answer. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. You're totally fine. <laughs> we'll let you talk as much as you want to. 
But I do want to turn specifically to the book because Master Mentors Volume 2 was fire. And in the intro, and in the intro, you were talking about, you know, you grew up listening to the Bruce Williams show on the radio. And although you never had a chance to meet him, he was a mentor for you. And I know so many of us believe that a mentor is somebody you go meet with and have coffee or it's like a leader in your church or all the like very physical present things that you can do. And, you know, it's a formal arrangement is how many people view it. Can you speak to just kind of how you reframed your thinking on that and what it means to you now to be a mentor? Sure. So as you mentioned, the book is called Master Mentors. This is volume two. In the opening that you're referencing, I talked about the process of mentoring. I'm actually writing a new book for HarperCollins called The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentoring, where I wrote 15 roles that mentors play. But the more I keynote and talk and coach about mentoring, the more I've come to realize, to your point, most of us think of a mentor as someone from the C-suite, someone from the sixth floor, someone that's you know down the block from us, a pastor or someone wise, a rabbi. But the fact of the matter is, as I look at most of the people that have had the biggest influence on me, they don't even know I exist. They're, I've read their 10 books, right? You know, I, I, like a deadhead. I don't love the Grateful Dead, but I'll follow people at conferences to hear them speak because I'm so interested. Jim Collins or Seth Godin, both of which I've happened to come to know fairly well, but that's beside the point. This gentleman you talked about, you probably are way too young for this, but back in the 80s, the most popular talk radio program was a guy named Bruce Williams. I think he was by maybe educational lawyer, by business and entrepreneur. He was a city council member. And every night he had a three-hour radio program, kind of like um, Dave Ramsey meets Shark Tank, kind of, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and people would call in about, you know, questions about probates or wills or having an attorney for a real estate transaction or how to get a mortgage or credit score or they inherited some money or they're going through divorce. And three hours, like literally 10 years of just listening every night from 6 to 9 p.m., I was that kind of nerd laying in bed listening. And after, you know, tens of thousands of calls, I began to learn a lot about FICO scores and, you know, uh, mortgage insurance and, and, you know, how to invest and what it means to have a will and such. So Bruce Williams was a, was a master mentor to me. He died never knowing Scott Miller even existed. And the point is, I think it's valuable, Megan, to broaden your sphere your understanding of what a mentor could be. Perhaps it's a musician. Perhaps it is a pastor on television. Perhaps it's a government official you'll never meet. I think we limit ourselves when we think of the Mm -hmm. mentor just being, you know, our father-in-law. There's a role for our father-in-law and there's a role for people that write great books and great good speeches and have podcasts. I mean, I have lots of people whose podcasts I listen to that I'll probably never meet, but I'm voraciously interested in what they're, I mean, uh, Chris Kardashian, right? I'm not a huge Kardashian fan. I don't hate them. I don't love them. I don't care. But I do like to watch their brands because they've done some remarkable things. Some things I don't care to be associated with and other things I can learn from. But what that mother has done in terms of built in business and brands, it's undeniable. I would call Chris Kardashian a mentor of mine. Not because I'm going to turn a sex tape into a billion dollar business, not because mm-hmm. I plan to have four wives, but because I think she's really smart at marketing and branding and having her pulse yeah. on the future. So mm-hmm. I never said those words before, but Chris Kardashian is a mentor to me. Right. Whether I meet ba- her or not. Basically anyone you can learn from. Basically anyone that you can it's learn true. from 
you know, take now, something from. But Brandon, someone might think, well, Scott, you're watering down the idea of a mentor, right? A mentor is someone that has great wisdom in a space you want to be in, and you meet with them, and there are boundaries, and mentoring is different than coaching. I get all of that. I could talk about it and hold my own. But yeah, I do. I think I probably could name you 15 to 20 people that have absolutely been mentors in my life. Half of them I meet with on a semi-regular basis, and half I've never met and never will meet. But I, but, but their insight is just as valuable to what I'm learning from someone, you know, at Starbucks having coffee. Absolutely. I know that you have certain criteria for the people that you feature in your books. And obviously I know they have to be on leadership on the on leadership podcast. That's a lot to say, but what are some other care, like some personality or some core characteristics of the people that you're choosing? Yeah that they will agree to have me feature them in my book. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, let's be serious, right? In fact, my, my problem is, uh, Megan, my biggest problem is I hold a launch party every year. So I launch this book, I hold a launch party, a couple hundred people come, it's great. There's a DJ and the, and the mentor, some of the mentors fly in. But the problem is when you're, when the feature your people you're featuring are Ariana Huffington and Deepak Chopra, they're not coming to Scott Miller's launch party in Salt Lake City. So the bigger the celebrity is, the less likely they are to come. But no, really, to answer your question seriously, I do write the books with their permission. So first of all, they have to be agreed to be in the book. I'm using their image, I'm using their content, and I'm shining the spotlight on them. So the first criteria, as you mentioned, is they have to be a guest on the podcast. The second is they have to be agreed to feature in the book which hasn't been a problem. I think one person said no. Um, the real criteria is that I find something they shared transformational. That I find an insight they shared on or off the air to be something like, gosh, that was remarkable. I don't really so much care about their celebrity. I don't look at how many Twitter followers they have. I got enough of those. I really look to say, did, did they share something that I think other people could benefit from? Not just me, but someone else could benefit from. And do I have something to add to it? Did I struggle with that? Did I succeed around that? Do I have a story to tell around that? Or did they just tell such a great story? I'm just going to put the transcript in the book, which I do about every eight or nine chapters. I take a part of the transcript out and put it in the book. So that's really the criteria is, do I think they have something to share? The answer is most every time, yes. And as you know, it's very episodic. I pitched the book to one publisher and they passed on it. They said, no, this book will never succeed. It needs like a red thread. It's got to all be about baseball or all about leadership or all about character. I said, no, I want this book to be episodic. I want one chapter to be about character and one about brain health and one to be about brand and one to be about strategy and one to be about parenting. And it worked out really well. So it's very episodic. So I do try to compliment it, Megan, with people of different genders and ages and races and nationalities and different you know, levels of fame and success and some un- unknown names as well. Different stories that are really emotional, others that are hysterical. And so I think the books that I like to read are short books, mm. that they're entertaining books, that you can go to bed at night and read one chapter in seven minutes and put it down and pick it up the next day and not feel lost. And that's why I write these books that are fairly easy to read. You can read it on a flight or you can read it over 30 days, one mm. chapter a mm-hmm. night and really not care about what you read before, move on to a new chapter tonight. Moment of truth. Who is your, fir- who is your favorite interview in this book? Oh, Ed Milet. Yeah. I mean, Ed Milet is hysterical. But so from an entertaining standpoint, it's Ed Milet. But from a gravitas standpoint, not that Ed doesn't have gravitas, he does. 
I interviewed a man named Bobby Herrera. He's the second chapter. I strongly mm-hmm. encourage you to read it. He wrote a book called The Gift of Struggle. Yeah, and that was a good story, one. His story about being seen on the high school football bus for me is one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard and one of the most favorite stories I like to share. Yeah, so his story is about being essentially the poor kid on the bus, right? And a man comes and essentially changes his life by saying, hey, I want to buy you and your brother dinner tonight and not having to be the kid that stays behind and not join the team for dinner. That was, I'm reading that little transformational statement, like, who did I impact today? Like, oof. Yikes. Yeah, did I did I do that today? Yeah, it hits you. I'm, it hits you. I'm honored that you shared that one as well because the, the essence is, you know, who have you made feel seen today? So many of us walk around not feeling seen by our spouses, by our members of our church or synagogue or mosque, by our colleagues. And he shares a riveting story about how someone simply boarded the bus walked back to he and his brother, who every night after football games, they did not join their college team into the sizzler for dinner. They stayed in the bus because their mom packed them a dinner. And one night, one of the team members' fathers reboarded the bus and said, come have dinner. I'm paying. No one needs to know. Someday in life, pay it forward. Mm. And it changed his life. Went on to write a phenomenal book. His book is called The Gift of Struggle. His name is Bobby Herrera. And he's the second mentor featured in Master Mentors. How about the first mentor, Zafar Masood, who survives the oh. Pakistani plane crash? I mean, that is yeah. a life-changing story. Fell from the sky. Yeah, I was like, airline what? seat. Landed upright on a roof. Literally alive, landing in the airport. In it. <laughs> lands on a car. Blows the windows out. And is here to tell about it today. I mean, that, that'll, that'll change your life. Oh. Well, I think that's a great place to end it, Scott. What, when, can you tell us, the book comes out October 4th. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So okay, the book so Master Mentors, Volume 2, and they can get it on Amazon. Everywhere, everywhere. Everywhere. Mobile. Yeah. People always ask me, where can they get your book? I'm like, uh, bookstore? It's book. <laughs> <laughs> Every bookstore possible. So yeah, I'm honored if anyone wants to pick up the book that it's based on the podcast on leadership with Scott Miller, which is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast uh, like yours. My, my format's very similar, informal, on video, on audio. Basically, I've just taken all your skills and applied them to my podcast. That's why it's doing so well. So, You're so kind. We'll wait, for, we'll wait for that royalty check, Scott. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thank you. Honestly, thanks for coming out again. You're one of our favorite people to talk to. You're obviously a mentor to us, and, and we appreciate you. I love following you too on social media. If your subscribers aren't following you on Facebook and other platforms, they should. You all are a beacon of light. You are the essence of what it means to be an energy infuser. I love your morning videos. The questions you ask are always very calm and sometimes even a little bit somber. It kind of gets me out of my freneticism. I kind of <laughs> slow down and I love seeing you, Brandon. Megan, it's great to see you again. You I appreciate too. It, Thank Scott. you so Thank much. You. Thank you both.